And well, I imagine we have more than one chess player in the audience, so you know that a pawn uh, in a chess game is the piece that is of smallest size and least value. Uh, a pawn is something you sacrifice. We have even have that phrase, you, you sacrifice a pawn. It is, it is for a greater purpose, for a later move. So whether we're talking about a, a board game, and sometimes we take that word and we even apply it to people or situations, a pawn is something of little consequence to play out for something greater or more important later. That's what a pawn is. Now, last week we continued our study uh, in the letter to the Romans. We moved into a new section, chapters 9 through 11. And in this section, the kind of the big question being answered is, what happened to God's plan for the Jews? Where's this thing going? Because you remember Jesus comes, the Messiah. Man, this is the, the fulfillment of promises made to the Jews. And certainly there are Jewish Jews that begin to follow him. But as the gospel is spreading, as the church is growing, this, this thing is becoming less and less Jews and more Gentiles. It's becoming more about the church and less about Israel. And, and so a, a Jew could look around and say, hey, what, what happened to God's plan for us? I mean, the whole Old Testament is about God's plan for us. But boy, that sure doesn't look like how things are unfolding now. Did, did God forget? Did God change his mind? Has he just rejected us? Has the plan broken? And so it's kind of with that historical context that we then enter chapter 9. And Paul begins to address that question. And probably the simple response of chapter 9 is, don't worry. God's got this. And in, in the way that Paul says that is he points to God's selection, or we use the word election. God started with a sovereign choice. He started with a process where, where he picked. And by the very fact that God started something, that guarantees a successful completion. And so as God begins it, you can take rest that God is going to end it. God's starting is God's beginning. And you know, folks, sovereignty, when we think about God's control, God's sovereign work, that really should bring to us to a place of peace. It really should cause security in a sense that everything is okay. But you know, as you unwrap that idea of God sovereignly controlling everything, it can, I think, bring about some, some challenging questions like... Are we just pawns? <laughs> are, are we little more than pawns in the story that God is writing and the story that God is controlling? He uses this pawn to show his mercy. He uses this pawn to show his justice. Some will be ushered off the elect into heaven and some will be ushered off into hell. And this is picked, this is chosen before the world ever began. And you and I are born and we just begin moving down the conveyor belt of God's choices and Really, what we do, how we live, just kind of becomes inconsequential. Are we anything more than pawns in a world that God is sovereign? Challenging question to work through. I can take you to passages that kind of will send you both directions. How about Proverbs 16.4? The Lord has made everything. Now, what does everything include? Yeah, this is not, this is not trick question, Okay. <laughs> Now, you know, I'm surprised the, eight, the 825 crowd, you know, tired, trying to wake up. They jumped right on. Let's try it again. What does everything include? Everything. everything. That's right. You now, think about that. Think about the seven days in front of you. Every moment, 
Every situation, every person, every relationship, everything that is going to go on in this week, God made for His purpose. There is nothing that happened last week. There's nothing that's going to happen this coming week that falls outside of God's control, that falls outside of His purpose. Proverbs 16, 9 says, man, man, we have plans in our heart, don't we? We've got plans. As a matter of fact, if the sermon gets a little long or a little bit boring, you'll start making some of those plans in your heart right now, won't you? Start thinking, I need, I need to do this tomorrow, and I got to, Wednesday, I got to go by and get that, and oh, Thursday, we're going to be going and doing that. You know, you'll start making plans. Make all the plans you want, but don't ever get confused. When those plans get played out, who's directing the steps? And so, yes, we can go to a group of passages that clearly communicate, I don't want to say pawns, but we're just moving along in God's story. It's God's story. It's God's plan. Romans chapter 9 said, He can use you, He can use me, as He wills, as He determines for what He's doing. Yet we can also look at some other passages. I mentioned this last week, Genesis chapter 1. Man was created in the image of God. We were created in His likeness. Do you know that statement is not made of anything else in all the universe? Not even angels. Angels were not created in the image of God. You and I were. Doesn't that say something about our value? Psalm 8.5 elaborates on that and says, Lord, you, you created us just a little bit lower than yourself. You crowned us with, with glory and honor. You put us over as Lord over all the works of your hands. And when we're in that status and in that position, do we have choice? Do we have a free will? Gosh, Deuteronomy 30 says it right there, doesn't it? You know, I put before you life. I put before you death. I put blessing. I put cursing. You what? Choose. Choose. Make a choice. Only a free being can make a choice. And then where we're going to be going today, Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls, not just who I picked... Not just the elect or the unelect. Everyone who calls on the Lord can be, will be saved. Now, again, does that sound like we're of little consequence and value? Does that sound like we're just moving down a conveyor belt? We, we don't really make any choices that amount to anything? Man, absolutely not. Folks, we are created to mirror God, to show the likeness of God. God's attributes, God's character qualities are done in perfection. You and I can't do that very well, can we? But we can mirror these things. God's kind, we can be kind. God is free. As a matter of fact, He's the only free being in all the universe. But we can mirror that freedom. We're not just responding by instinct, but we can mirror, we can express freedom. And not only do we have freedom, but we make, we make those choices. We live lives of human responsibility and are held accountable for that. And you don't have to run all over Scripture. Well, here's some verses that say that side, and here's some verses that mean... Man, it's right here in front of us. Romans chapter 9. God picks. God elects. And then we come into Romans chapter 10, and it's about an open invitation to all. And your response, my response to that invitation. Let's see what that looks like. Turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some in the chairs in front of you. You can reach or have somebody hand it to you. But let's look at this all together. Romans chapter 10, and I'm going to begin in verse 1. It says, Brothers, my heart's desire... And prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. 
Because they disregarded the righteousness from God and attempted to establish their own righteousness. They've not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law. The one who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart who will go up to heaven. That is to bring Christ down. We don't have to go up and bring him down. He's already come down, hasn't he? Or who will go into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. We don't have to do that. He's already been resurrected. Verse 8, on the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you in your mouth and in your heart. We do not have to claw. We do not have to scratch. We do not have to go on a treasure hunt on how to know God. What does it say there? The message is near us. And this message, and this is the message of faith that we proclaim. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart one believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth one confesses, resulting in salvation. Now the Scripture says, no one who believes on Him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, since the same Lord of all is rich to all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe without hearing about Him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how welcome, how beautiful are the feet of those who announce the gospel of good things. You know, I want to begin the same way I did last week. I want to say this isn't really the focus of my message this morning. But boy, look at that last verse. And we saw the same thing last week. It talks about what is beautiful. Boy, we think a lot about what is beautiful in our culture, don't we? We spend a lot of time, we spend a lot of money, we give a lot of effort to maintaining and to presenting beauty. We're probably thinking about it every day. Do you ever think about what does God say is beautiful? What does God say is beautiful? Folks, that question's answered for us right here, isn't it? We are never more beautiful to God than when we're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are never more beautiful than, we're tell than when we're telling somebody about Jesus and what He has meant to our lives, what He has done in our lives. Now, Romans chapter 10, or Romans chapter uh, 9, showed us election. God picking, God choosing. Now, whatever election is, folks, it does not deny human responsibility. It does not deny human freedom or, or human involvement. We see that in this passage. Now, I think some, when they think of predestination, when they hear the word election, they kind of imagine this cold, emotionless God who's just picking and choosing. You're, you're picked, you're not, you're picked, you're not, you're saved, you're not, you're elect, you're unelect. And then it's done. And, and that picking, that choosing is done, and it, and it is done before the foundation of the world. It, it is done before we're born, but they imagine that, and then, and then we're born, and then we move through life, and how you live, and what you do is inconsequential, because obviously God's not going to be wrong. God's not going to make a selection that doesn't come to, to fruition, and so it's just done, and, and we're just moving through, and nothing we do makes any difference. Now, if that is what Romans chapter 9 is saying, then would that not make the words of Paul in chapter 10, verse 1, just completely irrelevant? I mean, if God has picked, it's done, that's it, then what, pray tell, difference does it make what Paul's desire is? 
What difference does it make what he's praying about and his passion, his desire for these Jews to be saved? You want to say, hey, Paul, did you just read what you just wrote? It's, it's already been picked. It's already been done. Your, your, your passion, your interest, your emotions irrelevant. Unless, of course, that's not what election means. You know, I look at verse, verses like 12 and 13 and some key words in those verses, all and everyone. Man, it says the Lord is rich to who? All who call. It doesn't say the Lord is rich to the elect. Well, we spend a lot of time in chapter 9 understanding and looking at the elect, but then we come into chapter 10 and it doesn't say the Lord is rich to the elect. It says the Lord is rich to all who will call. And now, does everybody have the same opportunity? Does everybody have the, the same ability? It says everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. Is that a legitimate invitation? Does everybody have an opportunity to respond to the gospel? Think about this. If I were to say, um, right now, I'm going to invite everybody to my house tonight. We're going we're to have a cookout. Hot dogs, hamburgers, baked beans, potato salad, coleslaw. We're doing the whole thing. Okay? So once you all come to my house, everybody's invited to be there at 6 o'clock. Okay? Now, when you get there, of course, you probably never actually make it to my house. If, if you all all come, you'll have to park probably about a mile and a half away. But after you walk that mile and a half and you get up to my driveway, I'm standing there and I said, where, where, where are you going? Well, I was, I was going to go to the backyard. You said there's a big cookout. Everybody's, everybody's invited. Well, well, not everybody's invited. You see, before the service even started, uh, I went around and I handed out some invitations. I invited 25 people to come to my house tonight. Uh, and and you, you don't have one of the invitations, so you, you can't come. Does that sound like a very legitimate invitation that I made then? Now, you know, you might acknowledge, I mean, is it my backyard? Yes. Is it my food? Yes. Can I invite who I want? Yes. You, you might acknowledge my authority or my right or, or whatever to do that. I mean, you, you can invite whoever you want. But if, you're, if, if, if you had to have an invitation, then, then why did you stand up there and invite everybody? That, that, wouldn't seem, that wouldn't seem right, would it? Well, no more would it seem right for God to invite everybody and then say, well, no, you really, are, you really don't have that opportunity. You really can't do that. You, you, you really don't have that option. You know what I know about God is that He's kind. God's not looking for anybody to be left out. Will be people left out? Oh, absolutely. Because of their free response and choice. They just won't come to the barbecue. They won't come to the dinner. But God is kind and He says over and over throughout Scripture, I don't want to see one not make it. I take no joy in one person not making it to my cookout. No, I want to see everybody there. So God offers a legitimate, a legitimate invitation open to all. Now, some, I believe, who push election too far usually come to a passage like this and they explain how all's not really all. And everyone's not really everyone. And the world is not really the world. And they kind of do a lot of gymnastics with that. And it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous how they approach that. You see, remember I said last week, there's kind of two sides of this whole sovereignty versus free will debate. And the sovereignty side says, no, no, it's not really all. It's the elect that have that opportunity. And they do gymnastics, moving the words around and changing what they mean. And, well, this is what this is. Now, then there's those who are kind of fall more on the, the love of God and it's open to all and it's the invitation of all. And you know what they do with passages like last week's? Just ignore it altogether. Now, they don't play gymnastics with it. They just never go there. You can spend your entire life in a Baptist church and never hear a sermon on Romans chapter 9. 
You can spend your entire life in a Baptist church and never hear the word election or predestination. Guess what, folks? They're both true. I said it last week. The both sides have great verses to build their case. Their problem with both sides is they deny the other side. And for good reason. It seems like a contradiction. How can you have a God that is controlling each moment, controlling each situation, controlling each purpose to bring about His will? How can you have that and then at the same time say we're free beings and that we're each responsible for our own decisions? We would say that is a contradiction. It's a contradiction for you and I. It's not a contradiction for God. In His economy, He's figured it out. He can do that. Remember what we said last week? God's not limited by what our, remember the word I used? Puny. God's not limited by what our puny minds can figure out. God's not limited by what our minds can put together. And I think that's good news, isn't it? Wouldn't God be like really limited if he could only do what you and I could figure out? Only do what we can add up? And so he has said, hey, I can make this work. Both are true. You cannot deny the sovereign picking and the sovereign working of God. And you cannot deny the free will and responsibility of man. God affirms both. God has affirmed both of those things. So one might ask, well, you know, that's, that's just my problem with the Bible. It's just a series of contradictions you have to swallow. Oh, absolutely not. Folks, I I don't believe the Bible is a series of contradictions. As a matter of fact, I think one of the miracles of this book, one of the proofs that this book is the actual genuine Word of God, is how consistent and unified it is all the way through. I mean, this book was written by over 40 different authors. Can you imagine if we got 40 of us in here together? And we're a pretty homogenous group. Can you imagine getting 40 of us together? Do you think we would agree on everything? You think we would have the same answers and the same outlook on everything? And yet it's not just 40 people. These 40 people span a 1,500-year time span. That's how long it took to write the Bible. You think somebody in 500 A.D. looks at things a little bit differently than somebody in 2000 A.D.? You think they'd give some different answers on life and issues? That's 1,500 years. Yeah, they're going to do that. You think somebody who lives their entire life in war... And in poverty is going to look at life differently than maybe somebody who lives their entire life in wealth and, and peace. And yet these authors represent both views, both sides. This book was written on three continents, in three languages. It, it was written in all of these different environments. And yet when you open this book, it doesn't read like a, a conglomeration of, of different people and their different ideas. It reads like it was written by one author, doesn't it? From Genesis to Revelation. And it has absolute unity in its answers on hundreds of issues. Dozens of of very intense uh, 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 subjects that that have great, uh, that bring people great controversy. And yet it answers with unity, clarity, and consistency all the way through the book. It's not a book of contradictions. It's a book of great consistency. In that book though, yes, there are some, not what I would call contradictions, what I would call mysteries. And we are comfortable with some mysteries, aren't we? How about the Trinity? Isn't that a little bit of a mystery to us? I mean, we open up the Bible. I can take you to verses in the Old Testament. I can take you to verses in the New Testament that say God is one. We're a monotheistic faith, are we not? We believe in one God. We don't believe in two gods, three gods, four gods, or more. 
And yet in that same Old Testament, in that same New Testament, I can show you God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now by my math, that's what? Three. Oh, so, oh yeah, but that's three. But they're not three gods. <laughs> it's three in one. And yet it's three distinct persons. They actually have conversations with each other. But they're not three gods, they're one God. It's not one God, but it's three. This is the triune nature of God. For some, that'd be a little bit of a contradiction, wouldn't it? You can't have one and say it's three. You can't have three and say it's one. We don't call it a contradiction, we call it a mystery. This is what God has revealed about himself. On purpose, right? You know, when I think of a a contradiction, I think of something that was a mistake. Something that was an accident. You know, last Sunday I said this event was going to be Wednesday at 6 and and today I said it was going to be Thursday at 7. That's a contradiction, isn't it? I made a mistake. I got to go clean one of those up. I got to go correct one of those. But yet when you look in Scripture, it's not a mistake. It, It wasn't, whoops, one guy said this and the other said that. No, it's consistently, intentionally, over and over and over communicated God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Not three, but one, one in three. It is the triune nature of God. And in the same way that we have kind of, okay, we have settled that as a mystery and that is our faith in the nature of God. Folks, I would put the debate of sovereignty versus free will under the same kind of mystery. Yes, difficult for us to piece together. Yes, difficult for us to, how can that both be at the same time? And yet, not on accident, on purpose. Old and New Testament, God reveals both of these things. And he come, we come to, to, again, coming out of chapter 9 and, and those great statements on, on, on God's sovereign electing and God's sovereign choosing. And yet we come to verses like 12 and 13 and, and look at verse 14. I mean, you know, if, if, if you're realizing, hey, there are people who are saved and there are people who are not saved, would that not leave the average person to figure, ask themselves, well, which one am I? And yet, as I come out of 9 and into 10, not one time am I going to ask the question, am I elect or am I unelect? But as I read chapter 10, the question is going to be, have the gospel been presented? Has the gospel been heard? And has the gospel been received? That statement right there is my only point of reference on this earth in my life to know whether I am saved or unsaved. Have I heard the gospel and have I responded to the gospel? In chapter 10, it's all about man's response. Look at verse 14 there. It's all about man's response to the gospel. Have I heard it? Have I received it? What have I done with this gospel message? That is the question. And boy, it really challenges how we think about that. Boy, it challenges even in in verse 2 our sincerity. Boy, sincerity is like everything in America, isn't it? You can believe anything you want as long as you're sincere. As a matter of fact, the moment I see that you're sincerely believing that, zealously believing that, I am to accept that. I am to tolerate that as your truth, as long as you're sincere. But what does Paul tell us in verse 2? You can be sincere. You can be sincerely lost. You can be sincerely wrong. And the issue, that the reason sincerity doesn't measure up is not was, well, you may be sincere, but you're not elect. No, You may be sincere, but you haven't met the standard of righteousness. There is a standard, isn't there? And God sets that standard. We don't set that standard. And God judges who's met that standard. We don't judge others and we don't judge ourselves. God determines who's met the standard for righteousness. And you know what? Out of His love, He's already told you, He's already told me, you haven't met the standard. You can't meet the standard. You're not going to meet the standard. But out of love for you, I've sent my Son. 
And my son has met the standard for you. That's what's being said there in verse 4 when it says Christ is the end. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the completion of the law on your behalf. You couldn't fulfill the law. You couldn't walk through the law and finally say, it's finished. I've ended it. I've done it. I've met the law. You and I can't do that. But Christ could and Christ did. You know, we make much, as well we should, we make much of the death and resurrection of Christ, don't we? Don't forget his life. Because that's what verse 4 is saying. Christ lived a righteous life. And that righteous life is then applied to my account when I become a follower of Christ. So when I go before the judgment of God, it is the righteousness of Christ and the life he lived that is credited to me. It is his death that pays the penalty for all those places I was unrighteous and they are many. All those places, it's his blood that washes clean all that unrighteousness. It is his resurrection then that shows me, gives me the hope that I can be resurrected in this righteousness and live in a a righteous relationship with God. And therein, folks, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Christ, you can be forgiven. In Christ, you can be righteous. In Christ, you can live eternally. And it has, it's not about sincerity and it's not about how hard you've worked. It is about, what does it say in verse 9? Have you confessed with your mouth the Lord Jesus? And have you believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead? You know, this belief... Boy, and sometimes I think we just whittle this belief down till it's almost worth nothing. This belief is not a, a mental acknowledgement of a historical event, the resurrection. It's much more than a mental acknowledgement of a, of a historical person, Jesus. This belief is a belief that defines my life. It, it defines how we look at people, how we relate with people. It defines my money. It defines my time, my values, my priorities. It defines how I'm going to look today, how I'm going to live today. It defines everything. And in those definitions, it then directs. Folks, it, your relationship with Jesus Christ and the gospel you have received should be defining everything about how you live the rest of today. It should be defining everything about how you take on tomorrow. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It does not call on you to figure out whether you're elect or unelect. It calls on you to ask yourself, have you called on God to forgive your sins? And boy, look at the promise there. Everybody who calls, whoever you are, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, whoever you are, if you call you will be saved because God completes in his sovereign work what he starts. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are amazing. We praised you last week for your, your greatness, your glory, that you're so big. And God, we praise you. There are things about you that are a mystery. They're bigger than we can cram into our mind and that we can put together. God, I pray we do find rest in that. We do find peace in that. Lord, we praise you for your bigness. Lord, I also praise you for not only what I can't figure out, but that in a world where you're completely in control, and and, and I have to know that, to have hope, to have a sense of peace and security. And yet, Lord, in that world, you've not created us to be pawns. We are free beings, and we make a free choice, and we will be responsible for what we do with that choice. Lord, if there's any in this room right now, any individual, any person in this room that has never genuinely confessed that Jesus is Lord, never genuinely believed in their heart, a belief that defines their life, 
Lord, if there's any in here right now like that, would you tell them? Lord, they've heard the gospel. Would you speak into their voice, into their heart and mind right now that they've not received that gospel? Lord, I pray too for the wisdom and the understanding that that they're hearing your voice right now. I pray they don't for a second believe they're responding to me or what I've said or a, a moment of emotion, but that God, they hear you talking to them and they hear you speaking to them. Lord, if there's any loss, would you just whisper in your grace and your kindness, you're lost. You don't know me. You might be sincere, you might be good, but you've never responded to the gospel of Jesus. And Lord, may they know by the very fact that they hear your voice right now that you're inviting them to come. An open invitation to them to come to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be forgiven of their sins and take possession of eternal life in a relationship with you. Father, if there's any in here, may that happen in their life right here, right now. Father, I praise you that you're in control. I praise you that you're kind and you're good and you're forgiving. We worship you, God. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.